Happy Sunday, Coastway Church. I hope you are well-fed, well-rested, and ready, uh, ready to dig into God's Word today. Great to see you. We're going to be in James chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. So today we are wrapping up our Faith in Real Life teaching series where we have walked all the way through the book of James. This is week 12. And man, what a ride it's been. I know that the Lord has strengthened my heart, built my faith, convicted me in so many ways. And if you've been here for any part, I'm sure that you could relate to that on some level. But we have uh, seen all throughout this series, James is wanting us to know that real faith shows up in real life. Just a quick review. That's, that's the summary of what James is getting into. He's, he's wanting us to know uh, over the course of five chapters that real faith shows up in real life. It's not just something that's compartmentalized on Sundays or in a community group or when you're around your Christian friends. It actually it shows up at work. It shows up at school. It shows up in the everyday settings where we live, work, and play. And there is one more big area, big topic that uh, James wants to show us uh, is, is intended to show up in everyday life, and it is our finances. Uh, James wants us to know that uh, real faith is going to show up in our finances. And I, I do want to say, before you start throwing things, just understand some things, because this is never an easy topic to talk about. Um, and I think that what we need to do, yeah, I mean, you're showing up to church, you're like, yeah, pastor, I'm wearing my stretchy pants today. Could you at least bring a sugar pill sermon to me? I mean, it's after Thanksgiving, take, take it easy. And I'm like, this is, hey, this is where we're at. We're just going, we're, 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 this is where we ended up. Uh, in the book of James uh, for this Sunday after Thanksgiving. And I just, I want to lead off with God's heart. Um, anytime that God brings up finances, it's because he wants something for us, not because he needs something from us. It's because God is committed to the completion of your joy. And too often we, we, we seat our joy, we even stoop our joy to lesser loves than Jesus. And one of those common lesser loves is our, our finances, and uh, I, I think the character of God is so helpful uh, right out of the gate here. Let's just let's, let's look at the character of God as a giver. God was a giver. Why did he create the world? Is it because he was lonely? No. No, Father, or, or God, God three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, he wasn't lonely. There was an eternal, um, self-fulfilling, self-existent community that he was a part of uh, from um, uh, from all eternity. He's, he's transcendent of time, space, and matter. And so it wasn't because he was lonely, it was because he had abundance. And what happens when you have an abundance? You're like, I want to share this with some other people so they can enjoy it. And so he pours out of his abundance in creation. And then we kind of mess things up, and it doesn't go so well. We think that we know how creation works better than God. The Creator knows how creation works. And so Jesus comes, and he comes to fix what we messed up. He comes to give to takers, to people who make life all about us. And so we see that God is a giver in salvation. Uh, probably one of the most helpful verses on generosity is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. So God is a giver. He's a giver in creation. He's a giver in salvation. And more than ever, I would just say, guys, we need a word from God on money. Because over 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Mortgage aside, the average American has $22,000 in consumer debt. The cost of living has surged. Guys, we feel it. I mean, 
if you want to go out and buy bacon, you're going to need to take out a loan in order just to, to get out of the grocery store. I mean, we're, we're feeling this. But from the beginning and throughout history, God's people have thought very different about money, and here it is. Less with God is more, and more without God is less. That's a, a fair summary of the biblical teaching on possessions and money. Less with God is more, and more without God is less. So if you take what is in your hand and you put it in God's hands, I don't, I don't know how all this works, but I just know that God works it out. It multiplies. And so think about, uh, this, is, this is what you would call God math, by the way. God math doesn't always make sense with our math. So five loaves and two fishes out of, in my hand, could feed a few people. But in the hands of Jesus can feed 5,000 people. So you see how he takes what's in our hand, we put it in his hand, and then it multiplies, and it brings a lot of joy. Or there's this idea of, hey, 90% of my income with God is actually more than 100% of my income without God. And so here, here's the sermon in the sentence. I want to go ahead and give this to you. Real faith puts God first in our finances. And, and this is so important for us to know because we're going into a season where it's, it can very quickly become about consumerism and spending. And, and we can be me monsters, and we can make it about us, and what are we going to get? But uh, around Coastway, around the church, any church, it ought to be, hey, let's, uh, what are we going to give? How are we going to overflow from what God has already given us? And so the question really that's on the table is, are you putting God first in your finances? And I don't always bring my wallet up here on the stage whenever I'm, I'm preaching, but I want to show this to you because I think it's really important because you can have basically one of two postures uh, toward uh, your, your finances and your possessions is you can say uh, the wallet is over God's word. And so I will obey God's word in so much as it doesn't disagree with my wishes for my wallet. Or what you can do is you can say you can put your wallet underneath the word of God and say even when God's word challenges me, even when God's word says something that makes me feel uncomfortable, that maybe is a little risky, that is not, uh, not exactly gelling with my economic sensibilities, I'm going to put God's word over my wallet and what he says is what's right. And I'm going to walk by faith in that. And so my prayer for our church, and in so many ways this is already our church, is just that this would be us. That God's word would, would hold authority and hold credibility over our wallets instead of what the world does and what the culture says is that this is how you're supposed to live. As the church, we're an attractive alternative and we want to live this way. And so the, the prayer and the pursuit is that that would be how we would leave here uh, today. And um, some of you, you already know the answer to this question, is God's word over my wallet or is my wallet over God's word? I mean, I mean some of you would say, functionally, my wallet's over God's word. I mean, if you're just being really real. I've been putting it off. I know it's a priority. I even believe what the Bible says. I've just, for whatever reason, I've just not been doing it. And then others of you would say, yeah, no, God's word is over my wallet. <laughs> this has been a priority for, for, for me, my family, my household for a really, really long time. And uh, I would just say for the person who would, who would just say, hey, I need to make this a priority, praying that God would build your faith today. Build your faith to trust his promises in this area. For those of you who have made it a priority, I, I just pray that God would bless the faith that's already there and continue to increase it. And then others of you, you might just say, I, man, what is this about? What does it even look like to put God's word over my wallet? Uh, the prayer would be that there's just going to be some very helpful, practical discipleship that happens over the course of this message today. And that's what today is for. 
Uh, I want to point out that, that today's big question is, are you putting God first in your finances? Is not something that you ask one time and then just move on. This is a question that every faithful follower of Jesus must regularly wrestle with over the course of every season and every transition that we walk through in life. For example, you go into a new season of life like, I mean, we're gonna, we believe that discipleship starts at the home, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, at all these points. You know, we want our kids, we want our children, we want, we want them to think biblically, right? And, and we want them to ask the question, am I putting God first in my, in my finances? Will I put God first? And then you, you get married uh, or you graduate college and, and you go out and you start living on your own. You have kids, you have an empty nest, you enter into retirement. In all of these seasons, we're supposed to ask the question new and afresh, will I put God first in my finances? You get a new job, you get a, a, a bigger salary or a bonus at work. Will you put God first? Um, with your finances. I mean, and even like face some situation that if you're honest, like it's really hard. It's a burden. There's like financial hardships that you're walking through. No less ask the question, will I put God first right here? And I would tell you, church, that the best, most biblical way to think about blessing is to put God first and He will bless. God can't bless an area of our life where we refuse to put Him first. It's the principle of blessing. This is how God works. He blesses the areas where we put him first. And I'm just asking the question, do you want God to bless you financially? Then put him first. And I get it. This is a, this is a triggering topic because you're like, but it's my money. And I, I think I just want to have a lot of sympathy to that outlook because that's really common. And that's what the culture is constantly telling us is that Hey, if you earn it, it's yours, and you do what you want, how you want, when you want, because um, it, it's yours. But this actually misunderstands so much. God is not after your money. It's actually His money, <laughs> if, if we're really thinking biblically right here. He's after your heart. That's what He wants. And I think that um, if you look at Jesus' teachings, 25% of His teachings dealt with the topic of money. So you know what that would mean for our church? That would mean one in every four sermons. If we were to base the preaching calendar around the pattern of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry, one in every four sermons would be focused on money. And uh, some of you probably would start looking for a new church really quick. And I'd just be like, we're just going Jesus over here, all right? You know, um, I'm the mailman, right? But honestly, I, I went back and I looked and I'm like, today is the 86th unique sermon that God has given me the grace to give to our church in a little over two years. Guess how many sermons have been focused on this topic that Jesus talked so much about until today? One. And so I'm not apologizing. I don't feel weak standing in front of our church and talking about the things that Jesus talked about so much. If anything, I've come under conviction and I'm like, I need to do a better job. We need to talk more about this. This needs to be something that we focus even more on. And Jesus goes here because our hearts go here. We're so easily ensnared. Why do you think he says, Matthew chapter 6, 24, you can, hey, you can't have two masters. You can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't serve both. And what he's saying is wallets are the greatest walls to our worship. If you want to know what is it that's dividing your heart, what is it that's standing between you and just this deep abiding joy in Jesus, he's saying it's greed. It's 
fear. It's all these things that affix to, to money and what money can buy. And so when our attitude is, it's my money, we're, we're, we're getting off on a very faulty footing. We're, that's a, that's a, a scary sign. It says that our money actually has us, and we don't have our money. So let me lay a little bit of a foundation, then we'll get into James chapter 5, verse 1. But in James 4, 3, he's already set us up for this. James 4, 3, this attitude, it's my money, is singled out as why God doesn't hear our prayers. That might be a fresh thought. He says, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what he's saying right there is we can put ourselves first with our money, and we can reason like the world, it's all mine, I earned it, I'm going to spend it however I will or want. And admittedly, I've, that's just that's a selfish way to think about it. Like, it's all about me. But the good news of the gospel is there's so much help for us. There's so much grace for us, for, 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 for greedy hearts. On some level, that's all of us. And so James gives us a better option than selfishness, and it's called stewardship. He, he led off with this in James 1.17. I want to show this to you. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the Father of lights can shed light on your finances. If you truly want to understand how money works, you need to go to the designer of money, the giver of money, and look at it through the lens of what he tells us. And so unlike the selfish mindset, the stewardship mindset says, everything I own has been given to me on loan. And so I can't take it with me to heaven, but I can send it on ahead of me to heaven if I steward it according to God's terms. And so you, you say something like, God entrusted me with some really good things. And he doesn't want that good to stop with me. He wants it to flow through me. And this brings us to this big question, how? How do we put God first in our finances? Well, I would just say, by, by, by a lot of grace, we move from selfishness to stewardship. We move from uh, the grip of greed to uh, the grip of grace. And it changes everything about how we look at this topic. So take a look with me, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you one more time, Brother James. <laughs> Such an encourager. Very positive, right? You want this guy in your community group, right? Would really lift the room. And so uh, James, he's not saying that rich people are all bad. But he's also not saying that all poor people are necessarily godly. That's actually not a biblical idea. It's, it's prosperity theology that says that the more you have, the more godly you are. That's a false gospel. It's poverty theology that says the poorer you are, the more godly you are. That's also a false gospel. It's two twin errors that people tend to make in the church. But Jesus, James, the whole Bible talks about two types of poor people and two types of rich people. We talked about this in week four on partiality. I want to show this to you one more time. So what you have is you have the godly poor. So who are the godly poor? Well, this was James and James's family. He's the half-brother of Jesus, right? And so James and Jesus, they grew up in a poor family. How do we know that they were a poor family? Um, well, they didn't even have a place for Jesus to be birthed and born, okay? Uh, some say that the house that Jesus and James and his brothers and sisters grew up in was about the size of uh, your conventional parking space that you would see at the grocery store. Um, when they would go to the temple, um, they, uh, we know that they were poor because they actually brought a, a less expensive sacrifice, and um, if you were a poor family and you didn't have means, you couldn't bring like a ram or a goat or a lamb because you couldn't afford it. 
So there was a provision that made it possible where you could bring what's called a turtle dove. And you could bring that turtle dove, and that was basically a, a, a glaring giveaway. It's like, hey, we're a poor family. We don't have a whole lot. And Jesus and his family, Mary and Joseph, they brought the turtle dove offering to the temple. So there's the godly poor. That's James. That's Jesus. Then there's the ungodly poor. This is the sluggard of Proverbs. Um, uh, this is the nine ungrateful lepers who Jesus heals in Luke chapter 17, and they don't even thank him for it. They just go on about their day kind of feeling entitled. Then there's the godly rich. This would be Job. We heard about him last week. This would be Abraham. This would be Zacchaeus. Uh, what an encounter he had with grace. And what did that do to his greed? This would be Lydia, who we meet in Acts chapter 16, who was uh, in many ways the founder of the healthiest church in the New Testament, the church at Philippi, which, by the way, was also the healthiest church in the New Testament, and they were the most generous church in the New Testament. And then there's the ungodly rich. This is the group that James is about to rumble with, and this is who James is talking about right here. This is the people who overlook um, the needs uh, of those around them. Th this is the group of people who oppress others, uh, and exploit others at great cost to them and benefit to themselves. And so James is addressing the ungodly rich. It's people who worship wealth. And here's the irony in context. They're probably not even in the rooms where this letter would get read. And so what God, what God is doing through James is he wants his people to overhear his heart for justice and generosity so that our hearts don't drift toward envy and resentment to the ungodly wealthy who are among us. It's so easy to do because you look at people who have all these things, it feels like they have the whole world at their fingertips, all these conveniences and comforts, and you look at them and you're just like, I want to be you. But James is like, no, you do not. You do not. Consider the, the end. Consider where this is going for them. And so what James does is he gives three warnings to the ungodly rich. And it's not for being rich, it's for how they handle their riches. And what we're supposed to do as mindful, thoughtful, faithful disciples of Jesus is we're supposed to look at our own hearts and say, where are these three warnings showing up in my life? Where do I need to, to, to take heed and make some changes? And so let me just read verses 2 through 5 all at once, and then we'll, we'll look at these three warnings. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your gar garments are moth-eaten. So in other words, everything that you own is at some point or another going to end up at Goodwill, a yard sale, or a junkyard one day. There's perspective. Uh, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Greed will send you to hell. That's what James is getting at right here. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So the first warning that James gives us, and this is a sign that we're not putting God first in our finances, the first warning is hoarding. Hoarding. So in verse 3, James confronts the ungodly rich saying, you have laid up treasure in the last days. So what is, what is he talking about right there? Um, well, hoarding is uh, hiding or storing away something of value, usually for a self-serving purpose, usually with no intention to share it with other people. It's actually an unbiblical idea that withholds good from others and glory from God. And to be sure, I want to say this, this is not James high-siding on saving. This is not him high-siding on retirement pension plans 
or uh, being savvy with investing in stocks. We could actually summarize the Bible's teaching on wealth in one statement. We give to be generous, save to be wise, and live on the rest to teach ourselves contentment. Give, save, live. That's the biblical synthesis on money and possessions. We give to be generous, save to be wise, live on the rest, teach ourselves contentment. So, there's great wisdom in saving money. James is not knocking saving money. Because, and why do we save money? We save money so that we will not be an unnecessary burden on others and so that those who depend on us will not be unnecessarily burdened. And so if you don't save money now, you're actually going to cost money to people later on uh, because of that short-sightedness. And so remember, James's favorite source material, who is he quoting nonstop? We've talked about this a few times. He's going to Proverbs, and he's going to his brother Jesus. And so let me, let me bring in, let me get Proverbs involved right here uh, and see what it says about saving because there's actually a cross-reference. Proverbs 13.22. You may want to write this down. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Okay, there's saving to be wise. But the sinner's wealth, that's the ungodly rich that James is going, going after right here, is laid up for the righteous. So there's this reversal of affluence that happens, is that the wealth of the ungodly rich will one day be actually inherited and enjoyed by the godly poor or the godly or the godly rich, by the godly. And here's why. What does that last part mean? It says, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Well, the wisdom writer right here is saying that the joy that the ungodly rich get from hoarding their wealth will one day come to a sudden stop. However, he's saying that the joy of the righteous will last forever. And what this verse is doing is it's talking about this idea of a new creation, of a new heaven, of a new earth. In other words, a day is coming when every good gift on earth is going to be renewed by Jesus in a new creation. And who's going to be there to enjoy it? The righteous, those who are made right by faith in Jesus Christ with God. And speaking of, while we're talking about hoarding, did you know the largest wealth transfer in history between generations is currently happening? Forbes recently posted an article saying that the average baby boomer, those born between 1946 and 1964, has a net worth of $1 million and is in the process of leaving $68 trillion to their millennial children. So point of view for the millennial, what a time to be alive. I mean, you're, uh, not to be grim, but it's like there's, there's some, some big financial inheritances that are about to be passed on. Two observations. I want to talk about this through the lens of hoarding. Okay, two ways you could look at this. First, some boomers have put God first. Many in our church, we could look out and I could point to uh, boomers in our church who have done this, who are doing this, have given generously and saved wisely. And here's how we will know that that is the case. You may not have thought about this, but this hit me this week and I'm like, whoa, this is about to happen. When believing boomers go to be with Jesus, their millennial children will write very large checks to the kingdom of God because they were taught stewardship. 
They were taught where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And they saw it in mom and dad, those believing baby boomers who said, my treasure is not in the amassing of money and possessions. My treasure is ahead of me in eternity with Jesus. And so they saw that. And that's going to show up. And that's why I believe that the church, churches like ours, even in the future, over the, the decades ahead, are going to see resources pouring in to seize opportunities like never before. But that doesn't happen when you hoard. The opposite happens. Secondly and sadly, many others will end up in hell, having hoarded a lot of money. And we will also see an entire generation that is set up to do the same And so more than ever, multiple generations are at risk of doing the very thing that James and Proverbs and Jesus warned us not to do. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. This is Jesus right here, and James is just riffing off of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it is, straight from the mouth of the master. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So think about Jesus. Jesus neither hoarded nor held back his riches. Jesus went from rich to poor. He was doing pretty good in heaven, right? Before he came down with with us sinners. He had everything. Um... The earth is his footstool, the right hand of the throne of God, all reign, all rule, all dominion, the ancient of days, who was and is and is to come. Angel armies surrounding him with with glory and praise, and yet he stoops. He, He lays it aside, as Philippians 2 would say, and he goes from rich to poor, so we could go from poor to rich. This this might be probably top three most important verses in all of the New Testament on understanding generosity. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that what? You, by his poverty, might become rich. If you look at what Jesus gave up, to buy you back and bring you back, it melts away the greed that grips our hearts. And it frees us up to live a life of open-handedness instead of closed-handedness with what he gives us. If Jesus gave up his riches for us, how much ought we to give up ours for his glory and others' good? I had a good friend who texted me this week, uh, and he he said this. He knew what I was going to be preaching on, and I love it when this happens (laughs) Um, because I know that I'm being prayed for and I know that hearts are being prepared. But he just said this, uh, money is like manure. If you just let it pile up, it stinks. If you spread it, it becomes fertilizer and promotes growth. That sounds like something James would say, right? That's, that's got to be a proverb, right? I mean, this, it's, it's actually a very biblical concept. So the first warning is hoarding. The second warning is injustice. In verse 4, James says, The ungodly rich kept back by fraud the wages of their workers. So James is confronting the ways the ungodly rich extort legal systems or turn a blind eye to fair labor laws. 
I mean, the, the Bible teaches a lot about how we're supposed to think economically and financially and practically about all this stuff that's going on around us. And what we see is that the ungodly rich, this, this happens directly and indirectly. So let me talk about directly. This would be people who pay employers, um, who pay delayed or lower wages just because they can. Just because they can. Uh, think Ebenezer Scrooge. All right, I think I can use Christmas analogies at this point. Think Ebenezer Scrooge toward Bob Cratchit in, in A Christmas Carol. That's an example of this. But then we, th- this happens indirectly. And as Christians, we're called to think biblically about what love requires of us. And this is what that looks like on a nuanced level. Indirectly, we do this by actually supporting companies throughout the globe whose products are unethically sourced by modern slavery and sweatshops. We actually need to know where are our clothes coming from, where are our products coming from, and is it enabling injustice in some part of the world? If so, if so, I don't want to have any part of it. And I will say that James is not talking about government programs right here. He's saying regardless of your politics, the poor should never be unjustly punished. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of economic just, injustice, you know it makes you just feel subhuman. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. Um, I grew up um, in what I would say a, a godly poor family. And my dad, he was a hardworking, honest sign contractor. This was before everything went digital and everything could be like screen printed. So my dad, he was an incredible artist. He, he would literally, he would uh, design a sign, he would hand letter it, and then he would take it to um, his customer. He would install it in front of their storefront or wherever it was, and then it would be time for him to receive his due. And I remember there was a couple times, one time close to Christmas, that there was this one customer who just started hassling him over these little things and wouldn't pay him. And I remember what that did to our family during Christmas. It was like so hard. And you know, like if you've been on the receiving end of this, it is the worst feeling ever. And James says that at the root of all this injustice is ungodliness. It's like you're putting yourself first, which will inevitably show up in relationships, uh, in our relationship with money, the way that we handle our finances. But what does the gospel do? This is what makes the gospel good news of great joy that's for all people, you know, white or black, rich or poor, old or young. The gospel reverses the pattern of injustice through Jesus because if instead of the unjust punishing the just, the just was punished for the unjust. That's the gospel. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And that was how we were made right with God. Second warning sign, injustice. Third warning sign, self-indulgence. Um, I've got a friend, he pastors, um, he pastors a, a church in Miami. And one of the things that he says, he, he says every city has like this, this chief vice or this chief idol that it worships. And he says that the, the chief idol in Miami is vanity. Look at me. But this, this looks and keeping up this appearance. I would say the chief, from just from what I've seen, still learning, still listening, the chief sin so far in the uh, uh, just observations of where we live in Myrtle Beach and this tourist destination, it's self-indulgence. It's spend myself on myself, serve myself at all costs. So um, we're all here. We all live here. We're all breathing this air. Look at what James says in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
So James, I want to say he's not going after people who enjoy the finer things in life. All right? He's, talking to, he's not talking to the godly rich who have nice houses, nice cars, nice clothes, nice trips. That's not inherently sinful. But as long as you're incredibly generous. <laughs> James is going after those whose lives are ordered around pampering themselves at the expense of others. He wants us to know that you cannot separate your money from your eternity. And who you spend your money on now is one of the greatest indicators of where you will spend eternity later on. Let me just make this as simple as I, as I know how. Why do people go to heaven? Because of a life that was sent to be spent for sinners. That's the only reason that people go to heaven, is faith in that life. Why do people go to hell? Because of lives spent on self. God sends no one to hell. At the end of our lives, he says one, we say one of two things. Uh, we hear one of two things from him. Your will be done or my will be done. And if it's your will be done, that's what populates hell. If it's God's will be done, that's what populates heaven. And that's what we want to be about. Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is why James goes on in verse 5. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Still encouraging us, right? So I thought that this, um, this example was pretty timely. I heard about a turkey farm in England where there's all these lush green pastures. It's like idyllic. It just looks picturesque. And there's these big, plump turkeys that are just living in turkey luxury. And you walk past that fence in October, and you're like, man, those are, I mean, those are some big gobblers out there. And then you walk past that fence in January, nothing. Because the turkeys have all been destroyed. <laughs> they have destroyed and enjoyed, if you would. And what James is saying is, the, the wealthy in this world who worship wealth, the ungodly rich, you're making the same mistake that those turkeys are thinking out in that field, thinking that they got it made. You're not even thinking about where this is all headed. And all this builds toward one big question. Are you putting God first in your finances? We talked about what that doesn't look like, hoarding, injustice, self-indulgence. Now let me show you the redemptive solution. Let me show you how the gospel sorts this out and what it does look like for faithful disciples who are trying to be an attractive alternative amidst a hostile culture. James teases up in chapter 5, verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. you like, well, what's that about? Well, that's probably actual footage of what happened to some of the godly poor in the first century. They cried out for justice, and it was easy just to silence them. Uh, if, if they started pressing or pushing for, for justice, and they had an ungodly, wealthy, affluent master, it wasn't a big deal to just do away with them. But I want you to think about what else James is getting at. Notice how he says, the righteous person, a reference to Jesus, who, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, loved me and gave himself for me. So think about this. It all comes into focus when you like bring the Bible together. Who were the ringleaders in condemning and sentencing Jesus to crucifixion? The ungodly rich. 
And now, yes, there were ungodly poor who were among the mockers and the scoffers around the cross saying, crucify him. But think about this. All sinners across time, yes, condemned and sentenced Jesus. That includes us. But the ungodly rich, the Pharisees, Pilate, Judas, who for a bag of silver, for a pursuit of ungodly riches, betrayed the king of glory. And James is saying the ungodly rich took the life of the God of all riches, but notice how it says he did not resist. When it comes to being generous, our natural response is resistance. However, God gave his first and best for us at great cost to himself. And what is the only right response for us? It's to turn around and give our first and best right back, not because we have to, but because we get to. Let me address really quick the reasons why we don't do this. I think there's three, three big reasons. The first of all is that we're scared. We are scared. The thought of not having 100% of our money terrifies us. So what do we do? We hoard it. We play it safe. We go with the cultural uh, downstream. But I just want to tell you, Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, even when it comes to those scary matters related to money. But then another reason is just stinginess. It's like, what's mine is mine. And all three of these warnings, hoarding, injustice, self-indulgence, could be true of the stingy person. But at the root of it, it's like, I don't believe James 1.17, which says every good and perfect gift actually comes from God, who's going to shed light on how to think about this. And then the last reason is, some of you, you're stuck. You, you've made some unwise, impulsive decisions over time when it comes to this area. Or maybe you're not living within your means. That could be your car. That could be your house. That could be your stuff. That could be your coffee. That could be the degree that you really can't afford, but you keep going after. Or maybe you're still paying off, and your finances are just totally out of order. And the reality is, uh, stewardship is not just about generosity. It's also about management. And being wise, um, faithful managers means that at some point we got to figure out how do we get unstuck from these cycles so that we can be generous because you're not going to be generous as long as you're stuck. And so whether you're scared, whether you're stingy, whether you're stuck, we want to build you up, not beat you up. I heard, I heard it said, where the ideal is lacking, grace is abounding. And the church is to, to stand up and say, this is what... The ideal is, and this is how grace can get you there. And one of the things that we put together this week, in fact, is because, I mean, it could be, guys, the, the Bible is so practical. It could be as simple as, you just need to rework your budget. You just need to sit down with your spouse and talk about this stuff and get on the same page for a change. Coastwaychurch.com slash steward. We've put a, a, a budget worksheet together that you as an individual or you and your spouse could go through, try to think of the big categories. It's free. You can download it. You can personalize it. And the whole idea is to move us away from that, you know, scared, stuck, stingy, whatever, just with a practical step. But what's the full picture of generous stewardship? What's the full picture? Those are the reasons why we don't do it. Jesus has set the example. We have three words that help us know if our lives are pointing in this direction around Coastway. We, um, we use these often. Um, the, the first is... Um, costly. It costs us something. We feel it. The other is consistent, and the third is cheerful. 
it basically summarizes the, the sum of what, what the Bible teaches about generosity. So generosity is costly. Here it is. Generosity is costly. So I want to invite you to pick a percentage that you will give and be generous. And I want to be clear. Some people get a little rowdy right here, all right? As, uh, uh, as New Testament Christians, we are no longer required by law to give a specific percentage. But if that's where we stop, we're asking the wrong questions. It's like, how much do I have to give? Does the law still require me to give 10%? Wrong question. It's not what does the law require, it's what does love require? That's what we're supposed to ask. You see, the, and let me just go here. The Old Testament law did require God's people to tithe. That's the Christian word for a tenth. That means uh, you would give a tenth of your income and your means to enable the work of the temple where priests would mediate between man and God through this sacrificial system, and that was the arrangement. And some would object, say, well, that was the Old Testament law. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's our great high priest. Our bodies are the temple. We're no longer under law, but free in Christ. Yes, all true. Romans 7, Galatians 3, I'm glad you know your Bible. Yes, we are free in Christ. And yes, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is the keynote teaching on generosity in the New Testament, which I probably spent as much time in that passage this week as I did in James 5, just because it helps us see it so clearly. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is, is very clear. Paul says in those chapters, let me get Paul involved. He's for you too, just know that. Um, he says in these chapters, each one should give as they have decided in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, nor as a command, nor is anyone expected to give what one does not have. That's what the New Testament teaches. And we're going to get to that cheerful part in just a moment, but we need to be careful to not throw tithing to the wind. And here's why that's a slippery slope. When we do that, we're also rolling the dice on other Old Testament laws that are still in many ways fulfilled and helpful for us today, such as the Sabbath. Does anyone want to go out and work seven days a week? Of course not. There's something called the Lord's Day, which is the New Testament equivalent of the Sabbath, where we are to enjoy rest in Christ physically and spiritually. And how much sweeter is that rest knowing that it is finished? And so just like there's a New Testament equivalent to the Sabbath, there's a New Testament equivalent to the tithe, and it's costly generosity. So think about it this way. How much more extravagant is our New Testament generosity knowing that Jesus paid it all? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So if you really want to get wise and, and, and go New Testament, consider how the smallest percentage for a gift in the New Testament is 50%. I mean, think about it. People like Zacchaeus or the woman with the alabaster flask were so overwhelmed by grace, they gave in ways that didn't even make sense. And the honest question is, who's more generous? A Jew under the law or a forgiven Christian under the covenant of grace? And this is why we can no less say 10% is a faithful starting point for those who want to be generous. And I'll give you my personal testimony. I've not always done this. I was a Christian for four years before this settled in. And it happened through the example and influence of two people. One was an older, wiser pastor who pulled, who set me down and asked me about this area of my sanctification. He said, Jeremy, are you being generous? Are you tithing? I wasn't. And I needed to be called up. And he said, I think you should do that. God's hand is on your life. And I don't want there to be blessing blocked from this area because you're not 
following Jesus and trusting him with your finances. And I'm like, whoa. Like, and it just like responded to that. And the other person was my wife, Victoria. When we were dating, we would go to church and I would watch her every Sunday, get her checkbook out, write a check and put it in the box as, as it would pass or in the back. And I looked at that and I was called up. I, I came under conviction. And I want to tell you guys, there is no such thing as a biblical excuse to not be generous. And let me tell you why. Because um, over the course of our testimony and, and, and our, our story, uh, we've been married for 12 years. And we've been tithing at least 10% of our income to the kingdom through the church for all 12 years of those and giving above and beyond that to other ministries that we believe in. Um, but for 12 years, and that has happened... Um, <laughs> when we were getting out of debt, paycheck to paycheck, and when we went from, you might remember this, from dink to sink. Dink means double income, no kids. It was was an interesting time. It was a good time in some ways. Sink means single income, new kid. All right? So we went from dink to sink, and we that's that's challenging. We continue to tie through that. And I want to tell you that positioned our family to see God's provision in ways we never otherwise would have experienced. He was faithful then. He'll be faithful now. God will take care of you. He's always taking care of our family, even when we didn't know where the next means of provision was coming from. But if that's not where you're at, no one is saying you're any less saved. No one is saying you're any less sincere. Here's the invitation. Pick a percentage. If you're not giving anything, Start with 1%. If you're giving 3%, budget for 4%. And progressively increase from there over the years because we could never outgive God and we could never match grace. Some of you, you could go home today and you could make this adjustment overnight. Others of you, this is going to take some time. Maybe it's the scared, maybe it's the stingy, maybe it's the stuck, whatever. But regardless, will you take honest steps toward it? And no, this is what it looks like. And if you think this is manipulation, I do want to go here for a minute. If you think that this is manipulative, then give somewhere else. God, God is, has always taken care of our church. He, he always will take care of our church. But I just want to say, give somewhere else where you would completely and totally trust to be generous. But if you call Coastway home, <laughs> if this is where you're being led and you're being fed and you're being impacted on a weekly, regular basis, Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Guys, I wish I had time to get into the opportunities that are in front of us in 2024, and our church is going to need a war chest of resources so that we can be faithful stewards of the opportunities that God has purposed to give to our church. And you want to be able to say when that happens, I had a part in that. And so another question is like, should I give to the church or to a charity? The church is God's plan A. It's not God's plan only. Okay, so uh, there is a New Testament arrangement and even, I I would say, argument that you could make that the first and the primary, the equivalent of the tithe, goes to the church. To the church, through the church, so that the kingdom can advance and so that more good work can happen. So, hey, generosity is costly. Pick a percentage, feel the cost. Next, these next two will go quick, um, more quickly. Generosity is consistent. Make it a priority. It is, hum- it is humbling and helpful to consider how did God provide for some of the churches represented in James 5? It was through fellow believers who were consistently generous. 
That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Paul's uh, third missionary journey was basically a big fundraising trip where he was going to fund and fuel the mission and the needs of the church. And he went to other churches to help provide for those means. So how does God provide for Coastway Church? I want to share this with you. Through 21 households and six individuals within our church who are consistently generous. And I want to point out two of them are college students. These are everyday people who have decided in their hearts, this is what I make, this is what I will consistently give so that the mission of God can go forward. And as recipients of grace, we don't live, leave generosity up to chance. It is a consistent priority. And again, hey, listen, if you call Coastway home, the most simple, practical way to go about this is coastwaychurch.com give. Go on there and set up recurring giving. Our family does this. Many of you do this. The first thing that comes out when we get paid are the gifts we give to enable more good work, including 32 baptisms that we've seen in two years' time. It's the principle of first fruits. We see this in the Old Testament. More importantly, we see it in the resurrection. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is, he, that he might get first place. So Jesus rose as the firstborn on the first day of the week to show his rightful place, which is first. And so we put him first in our finances, not by just having it be costly one time or two times, but by being consistently generous and experiencing blessing, which is to put God first. Lastly, generosity is cheerful, so find pleasure in it. Generosity is cheerful, find pleasure in it. Paul said of those same believers in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 who gave to provide relief for churches in need, how they did so voluntarily and cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, they pleaded with him for the favor of giving in ways that help the church. And so some people view generosity the way that they think about paying taxes. It's like out of obligation. But the grace-empowered, forgiven follower of Jesus views it very differently. It's not an op obligation, something that I have to do. It's an opportunity. It's something that I get to do. And you've you got to love it when science catches up with Jesus. Jesus taught that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Neuroscientists tell us that when we give, it enacts the same dopamine release as when you win a game, eat a good meal, listen to your favorite song, or win an award. Generosity literally and physically fills our lives with happiness. And one of the things I so love about Coastway is how we have so many cheerful givers. God, I get emotional telling these stories. But every, every Sunday, what you will see if you're looking for it before or after services is there's going to be a line of kids trickling in and out, going to that box in the, in the back and putting their gifts to Jesus in the offering. And I, Eleanor this morning, she, she was quoting, uh, she was memorizing John 3.16. And um, she said, um, Daddy, I love Jesus. And I totally, totally unprompted. Daddy, I love Jesus. I was like, how do you know you love Jesus? She's like, I give money. I'm like, that's kind of the whole point right here. It's, it's a picture of like what, what, what gets your heart is going to, is going to get your resources. And um, I think about, man, um, there's one, one couple who's coming to our church and they've just been so blessed and so touched and so impacted. They came to me um, and they just said, hey, listen, uh, we'll be at the Weekender, but we want to fund the Weekender because we see the benefit and the blessing that this church has had in our lives. So we're not going to show up empty-handed like we'll be there, 
but we also want to fund it. There's another family in our church who's been so blessed by the ministries and mission and the message of our church that we do these big like parties at the beach. We did birthday at the beach. We did beach baptisms, and it cost to get people into the, the state park, and they said, we're paying for every person to get to the park and to get to the party because this church is changing lives, starting with me. I, I think about that. I'll tell you one more story. Uh, 25, 25 of us moved here so that Coastway Church could start from a bunch of different cities in North Carolina. And one of the things that I'll never forget, some of us did this, is we gave off the equity that we uh, had on the selling of our homes. And I remember one family came to me and said, this is the biggest gift we've ever given, and we're doing it gladly. It was like $10,000. And they said, this is what it looks like. There was one family earlier this year who said, hey, I know our church has gone through a lot of transition. We love this church. We're committed to this church. We want to see this church move forward. They gave a $9,000 gift just because. Uh, Above and beyond their tithes and their offerings. And we've got opportunities coming next week. We're going to be giving a year-end offering called Overflow. I'll share the details next week. There is a tree out in the lobby, by the way, um, with ornaments on it. And on the back of those ornaments, there's the names and the needs of students who go to Blackwater Middle School. And you can go out, you can secret shop, you can bring the gifts back to Blackwater Middle School. They'll wrap it and deliver it to the kids. We want that tree to be empty. And so we're going to talk more about this next week. Online, outside, the Overflow offering coming next week. James 5.1, what does it say? I want to turn this around and I want to show you, I want to show you what, what happens when the gospel overcomes our, our hearts. Uh, come you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. But did you know that through the lens of the gospel, the opposite can be said? Come you generous, rejoice and celebrate for the, the reward that is coming to you because of your generosity. And that it makes me think about what happens when Jesus truly transforms our hearts. It says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And so for the joy that's set before us, what do we get to do? We get to be generous. And I just want to lead us in a moment of response right now. If you would bow your heads and open your hearts. The question has been, is is God first in your finances? And I, I really I want to encourage you to ask that question right now between you and God, is he? And, and maybe answer this question, God, you are calling me to fill in the blank. Maybe it's put a budget together. Maybe it's get on the same page with your spouse. Maybe it's trust him in those areas where you've been scared, stingy, or stuck. And, and do it in a way that is that's open-handed and open-hearted. I want to pray toward that end right now. Father, I know that this is a, it's a tough topic. Um, it is something that we all feel and we all face. And I just, I thank you for those in our church who they're, they're hearing this message and it's just where they are. Just generous, bountiful, bountiful hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. I thank you. That, that, that's, that's how our church has come this, to this point. And it's how we're gonna see more happen going forward. Lord, I pray that you would just pour out grace on, on, on the fear, on the anxiety that, that may be present with a topic like this. And I pray that you would unleash us to be generous as you have first been generous to us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.